0: You. I teach again tonight, so thanks for saving my voice for that. I learned so much this week, and it's really cool. I mean, I dug into quite a bit, and I want to give us some Q&A at the end. We haven't had something like that um, in here, so if you want to do a little q and I've created a little bit of space this morning for us to do that, so if you do have some questions or as I share with you some things that God taught me from His Word, if you have some questions, just kind of write them down, and then we can revisit them at the end. What I might end up telling you is, well, this is what God showed me this week because I dug deeper into quite a few of these passages, but there were a few that like, I might say, I didn't go there this week, but I look forward to one of these days God revealing that to me, right? So even as you are reading, um, there will be some passages that might jump out at you that you really dig into. And then there might be others that's like, I, I'm not feeling especially led to like go deeper with that. I love that. I look forward to looking at that. But every week that you study, there isn't you're not gonna understand in depth everything that you're reading. So I I don't. I don't have that capacity, and I don't think God leads us to apply everything at once. I think we would die. Um, <laughs> or be exhausted or not understand and and Or if we did learn it all at once, then maybe we wouldn't walk with him. We'd go, oh, I already get that. I'm so already there. Um, but no, every day we walk up going like the Canaanite woman, Lord have mercy. Right? Um, first thing, several of you have been asking around the church and stuff about our trip to Israel. Here's, here's how I want to say this. It is not possible at all for me to really tell you about the trip. We went to, but I will tell you in this way, we went to 32 different spots and had 32 different devotions at each spot. So we covered Old Testament stories, we covered New Testament stories, we covered Jesus stories, but not just that. Like you're there going, what is going on now? And then like, how did we get from 70 AD when the temple was destroyed to where we are now. Like, how did that happen? So then you start looking at some of that history and go and asking questions. But then you go, and what's happening now? On the Temple Mound, where there used to be Solomon's Temple and then Hezekiah's Temple, it's like, there's a Muslim shrine? But when you're like on the Temple Mound, you might see Israeli pr- police, but you would also see, you know, Islamic police and you're like, what's going on? And then a guy in your group might have shorts down to his knees and they make him put a skirt on, right? So it's like, there's so many things that are like happening currently. And then at one point we went to an Israel museum and, um, speaking of signs of the times, which is something that we kind of learned about. At one point when we got to one of the last rooms over the loudspeaker, which we had been led through the museum the whole time by kind of a teaching over the loud speaker. And he said, we have the Ark of the Covenant. We know where it is, and our children are ready. And I'm like, they have? Where's Indiana Jones? He? <laughs> right? you're like, whoa, what is that all about? And then they, you go to the last room in this museum kind of tour thing, and you sit down, and they show you this little movie that's basically that they have 3D architectural plans for the next temple. And you're like, well, if the next temple is going to be built, that Muslim shrine is going to have to come down. And then I'm like, so, and you get over there, and you're like, you're seeing things, and then you're like, okay, so what does the Bible say about that? Like, you can be reading the Bible, but then when you're over there, it's like there's this, you got to almost do this work which is what we did at night sometimes or on the bus. Like, it was an exhausting trip because mentally, spiritually, and we just kept cranking because it's like we might just get here once. We don't know what's going to happen this year or next year. It's like, just make the most of it, right? But one thing that you're doing over there is you're putting together what you've read in the Bible with what what you're seeing. So I'm like, would God allow a third temple to be built? And then it's like, it's in Revelation. Like, can we just say Revelation? It's in Revelation that um, there will be a third temple built by zealous Jews, but Satan will use it for his purposes. That's literally what it says. And I'm sitting there and I looked at some people in our group. I'm like, time to go home, time to go home. Time to go. Home. <laughs> so you're looking at past history. You're looking at Old Testament, you're looking at New Testament, you're thinking, how did what I'm seeing, how did that happen? So you're looking at like, I wasn't much of a history buff, but like you're looking at the Byzantine period and I'm like, what's the Byzantine period? You know, and it's like, and then you're hearing about the Holy Crusaders and then you, it's like, and you're just like, bah! right, because it's, it's kind of surreal. But then also you had some moments of thinking about the future. It's just a pretty special trip. So if you can go, it's it's really worth it. I don't know if that's all you wanted to hear about our trip, but... That's about the best I can tell you about our trip, but then as we cover some of these passages in Scripture, just to unpack it from that perspective of my experience and what we saw, and I actually have one of those today. What I came down to as we were sitting there, and I, I even shared with you guys in one of our emails that we were sitting on the Southern Steps, which is where they believe that um, most likely Pentecost happened, where the Holy Spirit was poured out on believers and Uh, Jesus says, when you receive my spirit, um, then you will be empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the world. Like it was this commissioning of the church. So it's like what is happening in Carmel Valley is just as significant as what is happening in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is just as much here as he is there. Having said that, let's get into our... um, Well, let me just pray for us. Father, I... um, I just thank you so much for your Holy Spirit to teach us, to be with us, to give us your presence, that when we read your scriptures, we can open up our hearts to you, we can trust you, and you really do teach us, and you comfort us, and you lead us, and you free us, and you show us your love, and your power, and your beauty. What other thing can we say but thank you? So grateful. Amen. Interesting. So when you read Tyre and Sidon this week, that's Jordan. Isn't that interesting? Like he was walking, he walked a lot. So he was actually up in the area and you read that this was a Canaanite woman. And I wondered if you kind of went there with some of our conversations from the Old Testament of how God wanted the Canaanites, wanted Joshua to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And some of us struggled with that. Like that felt very unloving of God to do that. And yet here are the Canaanites and Jesus visiting them and a Canaanite woman in particular. And we've learned what in that day how women were perceived. So not just a Samaritan woman, which were intermingled Jews and some of the people who had come back, but these are like Canaanites. Are you with me, how we read about them in the Old Testament? Like they were, do not intermarry with them, do not worship their gods, they need to be out of the land, this is the land for my people, and you think how unfair, and yet, here she is. And we see God's powerful, loving, and beautiful plan. And I think also where I'm going to go today, I was telling the leaders that this week, I was like, that is such a cool story. That really helps us know what was going on in the Old Testament, that God was not forsaking them. He was just saying, it's not yet time. And because God is God, he gets to decide what is good and what is just and what is right. And in his perspective, it wasn't time yet for the Canaanites, but now it was time. And... Here she is, and she calls him son of David. So the disciples have really been struggling with this idea of Jesus being God. Like, are you a prophet? Like, I don't quite get what you are, and your teachings are really hard. And they were kind of struggling with this. She already had him as you're the Messiah. She had already gone there, which is incredible that a Canaanite woman believed the prophecies about the son of David being the king of the Jews and being the Messiah that was going to deliver his people. She had already gone there. She was already believing that. That's why she was crying out to him. God had revealed that to her. She accepts, I think this is incredible, because today I want to, and what hit me this morning... As I was thinking about the whole picture, and it led me to tears thinking about how God came to her and revealed such things to her, and how when Jesus later on is going to say, take up your cross and follow me, we actually see her doing this. So here, she accepts this inferior reference. Like, did you kind of stumble on that? Like, why is he calling her a dog? Like, I kind of struggle with that a little bit. Like, what's that all about? Jesus was telling her what culture had told her. Jesus always like draws people out and he knows the question to ask. Would you give me some water, right? And then he goes into this whole thing about I have water. Well, you will never thirst anymore. He knew to address what I would say would be her shame. What more shameful thing can you call somebody than a dog? And that's what culture had labeled her. That's what the Israelites had labeled her. Wrongly. But as God had called them to have the land and for the Canaanites to move, this is, he was putting what culture said about her on her. And it's interesting, her response. She didn't go, how dare you call me a dog? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know how hard I've worked? Do you see the struggle that I have with my daughter? Are you saying that she's a dog? I mean, she, she could have so gone after, who do you say I am? You say, I am a dog? And she could have totally gotten stuck there. She didn't. She basically said, "You can say whatever you want to. I'm letting that slide off of me because I know who you are. You are the son of David, you are the Messiah, and you can set my daughter free. That's who you are. So I know. So here's the disciple struggling with, "You're going to die, and we're going to see that in a minute like But she had already gone, and this is I love what I learned this week from a commentator. He said... When they're struggling with crucifixion, she was already at Easter. She already knew that Jesus was going to set them free. And then, in setting them free, that God was wanting to reach the nations. A Canaanite woman knew that already. So she's like, If you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, you're the deliverer, I'll take your scraps. Scraps are amazing. And he says, Oh, what great faith you have. And her daughter was immediately healed. Wow. Isn't it interesting that she needed to die, even to her shame, to be able to follow Jesus? Could we just stop there and have a whole morning just on that? But this is what Jesus was teaching. It's interesting, too, the feeding of the 5,000, 12 baskets, the feeding of the four thousand, seven 7 baskets, right? And Jesus is like, do you not understand? And I'm like, I don't understand. (laughs) To be honest, which I love when commentators say we don't really know, but most likely, right? So I'm like, oh, so they don't exactly know either. A lot of these things God is saying, but most likely what it means is when the 12 baskets were left over when he was feeding were the 12 tribes of Israel. Like God is going to feed and satisfy and save the 12 tribes of Israel. Seven baskets are this most likely are these seven Canaanite nations that were referred to that were living in the land. How cool is that? It was the... Uh, I'm going to read them out. Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Jebusites, Hivites. I can't even read my own writing. Gergesites and uh, Perizzites. I think it's Perizzites. Um, So he's like, I'm going to save them as well. How cool is that? So then he goes on. He works some miracles. And then it says that the Pharisees began testing him and demanding miracles. And one thing I want to specifically mention is when he talked about leaven, leaven is what you put in bread to make it just grow and spread. So he's like, beware of the teachers that you listen to. That's a word for us today, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But he talks about if, if you're so cynical when you're in the presence of Jesus, and you're so cynical when you see his teachings, and you're so, yeah, cynical is the best word when you're reading and Seeing and understanding, if you remain cynical like the Pharisees were, he's like the sign of Jonah. And I just don't want anybody to go, what in the world, right? So the sign of Jonah, Jonah was spit out of a whale after three days. So what he was referring to was when he rises again, when these Pharisees hear that the tomb is empty, they couldn't accept who he was when he was right in front of them. But they'll get a sign that God who has been raised from the dead after three days, was in their presence the whole time. That will be their sign. Does that make sense? That's the sign of Jonah. I wanna talk a little bit about the signs of our times, um, because it leads us straight into what Jesus is saying is true life. So the signs, the teaching, the leaven of our times, which a lot of times I see even in Christian literature that we just need to be aware of um, a guy has labeled it expressive individualism. And I think individualism has been around a long time. But it's this expressive individualism. I must have unique words. I must have a unique definition of myself. And it is totally pop culture to then put that out on social media or to have words or what do you mean? Like it is this demand for you to express yourself in a, in a very original way. Like, who are you? You know, like, I am this and I am that. And there's actually a lot of pressure for that. I think of working with my boys and talking with them through their, um, even their college applications. It's like, make yourself unique, right? And it's like, there's a, there's a lot of pressure with that. But when you think of having to make yourself so unique, and so individual, it's very isolating. And that's where you see a lot of the struggle and anxiety in our kids. But here are some of the slogans of expressive individualism. You be you. You be you, girl. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. These are things that, that are teachings that really creep into a lot of our literature. Um, and actually leave us leave us not in a good place. Um, there's like seven and I I can talk about this later outside of group time if anybody wants to hash it out more because I think a lot of what I'm going to mention today would be topics if you want to to really open yourself up to and have deeper conversations with maybe at your tables maybe with someone else Uh, but this might be a topic if you're like I'm not sure how to discern this in my life um, but some of their summary statements, I'm just going to read two. Um, one, the highest good is individual freedom and happiness, and I think that's been around a long time. What has been added to that is the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. Like, those are at an all-time, like, deafening noise. Um, Point two of that, and this feels kind of wordy, but I'll break it down for us, but this is what they said. Traditions, where did traditions come from? Parents and family, right? Traditions, religions, received wisdom, regulations, social ties, that restrict individual freedom, individual happiness, individual self-definition and self-expression must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. Because it's all about me having a unique definition. I mean, have you ever listened to the TV and go, this isn't even common sense. This doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. It's because this is what has crept into our culture is, it's okay if I If I say no to traditions or to received wisdom or to regulations or social ties or restrictions, I now need to just define myself of who do I feel that I am and I need to express that out loud. But you'll see that as people are beginning to go in that direction that there is this disconnect from other people because they're intentionally disconnecting so they can define themselves individually. You see the vicious cycle of that? But then when they feel disconnected, everybody wants acceptance. So then they go and find somebody that's like them. So then you begin to see groups of people that are kind of doing this self-definition together the same. Because then they feel, so it's like, that's kind of what, do you see that? Am I the only one who totally sees that? All right. Um, so I want to just read for us, and this is about all that I'm going to address in it because um, I want to move on. But if you look in Second Timothy 3 1 through 7, and I'm going to read it for you from the ESB translation and the message translation, and this is Paul talking to Timothy in the church, but understand this. That in the last days, and ladies, I'm not saying the last days as if I'm predicting when Jesus is coming back. Nobody knows. So in humility, I'm reading this passage, but he wrote this 2,000 years ago. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. We might be there two more hours. We might be there another 2,000 years. I don't know. But but they are building a third temple, or at least temple. <laughs> Sorry, okay, coming back. <laughs> treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness on the outside, but denying its power, I would add, on the inside. And it says, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So I would say weak-willed women who haven't developed personal convictions. So whatever the latest teaching or circumstance is, we just pull to and fro like that. That's one of our goals of women's ministry and women's Bible study is to provide a space where you can become a woman of strong conviction in Jesus Christ. Not perfection. None of us are ever going to be perfect. Matter of fact, the Bible says to be content in weaknesses and that we boast in our weaknesses. So that's not what I'm saying. But having convictions like the Canaanite woman, you are the son of David and you can heal my daughter no matter what this culture says about me. I know who you are. Convictions. This is what the message says. Just a little bit different wording. Don't be naive. There are difficult times ahead. As the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck-up, profane, contemptuous of parents, like disgusted. That's the word contempt. Contemptuous of parents, crude, Coarse, dog-eat-dog, unbending, slanderers, impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. Have you ever met somebody that seems allergic to God? (laughs) They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Stay clear of these people. These are the kind of people who smooth-talk themselves into the homes of unstable and needy women, And take advantage of them. Women who depressed by their sinfulness take up with every new religious fad that calls itself truth. They get exploited every time and never really learn. So when Jesus says, do you not know the signs of your times? I thought it would be very appropriate to say, what are some of the signs of our times? And I think that's some of the big stuff. And it makes it hard to apply what Jesus is going to teach us today. So that's why I wanted to put it out there and say... This is a sign of our time. This is the language of our culture, and we have to see it and acknowledge it if we're going to push through it. So having said that, Caesarea Philippi, we have some pictures. This is one of the places we went, and this is where Jesus um, took. Don't show the Jesus picture yet. Let me address this real quick. I asked Bob to give one, kind of putting a person, so you get perspective. Can you see the people that are kind of over to the far right? Like, this place is huge, but I love that you can, like, see that there are, like, markers and signs. So when you go to these places, it's like, it's not like it exactly was, but you get a feel for it, right? And there's a big cave over to the left. I'm going to address it in a minute. But in Jesus' time, it would have looked something like this. And those are not churches. Well, they kind of are. But those are temples of worship. So back in the Old Testament, um, Baal was worshipped here. And what did we learn about Baal in the Old Testament? Child sacrifices, right? This is a very bloody, gory place. Um, And then if you remember when the southern tribes and the northern tribes were separated, the king over the ten northern tribes was very jealous of the southern tribes having the temple. So he's like, I don't want to lose any of my peeps going down to the temple in Jerusalem, so let's just build our own temple, right? That was at Dan, which is close by here as well. So there was false worship happening during that time as well. And then later on, the Greek fertility gods. So that's why you see buildings that kind of look like that. This was During Jesus' time, they were worshiping Pan, a Greek fertility god at this location if you can see kind of on the top, that's where um, the water would, would flow. So here's what they believed. Caesarea Philippi's location was especially unique because it stood at the base of a cliff where spring water flowed. At one time, the water ran directly from the mouth of a cave set in the bottom of the cliff. The pagans, and you can see it's behind, that big cave that I showed you, it's basically behind those those ruins on the far left. Pagans of Jesus day commonly believed that their fertility gods lived in the underworld during the winter and returned to earth each spring. They saw water as a symbol of the underworld and thought that their gods traveled to and from that world through caves. To the pagan mind then the cave and spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a gate to the underworld. They believed that their city was literally at the gates of the underworld, the gates of hell. And in order to entice the return of their god, Pan, each year the people of Caesarea Philippi engaged in horrible deeds, including prostitution, sexual interaction between humans and goats. When Jesus brought his disciples to the area, they must have been shocked. Shocked. Caesarea Philippi was like the red light district in their world and devout Jews would have avoided any contact whatsoever with, that, with the despicable acts committed there. This was a city of people eagerly knocking on the doors, doors of hell. This is where Jesus took his disciples to teach them. And one of the first things that he teaches them and it's the first time he mentions it is here is about the church. The first time he mentions the word church is in Caesarea Philippi, the gates of the underworld. And Jesus presented a clear challenge with his words at Caesarea Philippi. He didn't want his followers hiding from evil. He wanted them to stand firm at the gates of hell. And the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. We are still here. What Jesus began with his disciples has multiplied and multiplied and multiplied through faithful followers of Christ who have told one person, who then told another person, who then told another person, and then that somewhere down the line, somebody told you, and here you are. The gates of hell could not stand against the gospel that saved you the gates of hell could not stand against the message that allowed Grace Point Church to be here in Carmel Valley at this time on this hill. Praise God. Jesus' words are true. We are witnesses to that fact. And then at this place, Peter proclaimed, on this, you are the Son of the Living God. When Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? And Jesus continued, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He didn't want his followers hiding from evil, he wanted them to storm the gates of hell unashamed. Did you see that word? Unashamed. Jesus' followers cannot successfully confront evil when we are embarrassed about our faith. Jesus knew that his followers would face ridicule and anger as they tried to confront evil, and his words came as a sharp challenge. No matter how fierce the resistance, his followers should never hide their faith in God. What Peter and the others were saying when they said that Jesus was the Christ was, You are the true king. They knew it was risky. With this, they were not only signing on to be part of a prophetic moment, but they were challenging the existing authorities in God's name. They were signing on for a royal challenge. Jesus was the true king. That meant that Herod and even further away, Caesar, had better look out. Jesus isn't going to build, he says, when I build it on this rock. He's not going to build an actual city or an actual temple he is going to build a community consisting of all those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king. And this movement, this community, starts then and there at Caesarea Philippi with Peter's declaration. What a place. Where would you, if you were Jesus, where would you have said, we're going to start the church here? Someplace pretty, pristine, peaceful. He could have done it in Jerusalem at the temple. And he declared it right before the gates of hell. To those who agree with Peter, this is the phrase, and what will be loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, and what will be bound on earth will be bound in heaven. It says, to those who agree with Peter, including us, that Jesus of Nazareth really is God's Messiah, this promise is made. Through this allegiance, they, you, will become the people through whom the living God will put the world to rights bringing heaven and earth into their new state of justice and peace. Peter has much to learn, as do we. He has many failures to overcome, including one in the very next passage. But even this is part of the process, because Jesus knew community after all will consist simply of forgiven sinners. It's true. When Jesus said, upon this I will build my church, he knew who we would be. He knew who Peter was. Interesting, right? That then he goes into, and I'm going to just read us. This is Matthew 16. It says, from then on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. This is verse 21 through 28. He began to explain to his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer. What? I thought we were storming the gates of hell. Are you guys with me? He would suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him and began to tell him off. That's the last thing God would want, Master. That's never, never going to happen to you. Then Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, was he calling Peter the enemy of God that was cast out of heaven with a third of the angels. He was calling him adversary and that Peter was listening to the voice of enemy of the enemy and not seeing things with God's eyes. I'll get to that in a minute. You're not looking at things like God does. You're looking at things like a mere mortal. See, there again, what are the signs of the times? What are mere mortals thinking? And what does God think about things? We need to be women of conviction that think about things like God does. That's where life and victory and freedom and peace and joy and beauty happen. It's where God is. Then Jesus said to his disciples, it's not just me that's going to suffer. If anyone wants to come after me, they must give themselves up. And pick up their cross and follow me. Yes, if someone wants to save their life, they will will lose it. And if anyone loses their life for my sake, they will find it. What use will it be otherwise if you win the whole world, but forfeit your true life, your soul? What will you give to get your life back? You see, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then he will reward everyone for the work they have done. I'm telling you the truth. Some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I'm just going to go ahead and read this next part because it's so powerfully written and concise because I feel like I could just Have a Holy Spirit moment, which wouldn't be a bad thing, but this is a teaching moment. Um, but this is from Norman T. Wright. What Jesus was saying to the disciples and to us is that we have to set off in what seems the opposite direction, as he was teaching in front of Caesarea Philippi, about starting the church and about taking the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the nations. It takes sustained mental effort to imagine all the ordinary a- activities of life. Working as like in a mirror. Have you ever tried to cut your own hair or trim, he says, or trim your own beard? I hope none of us have tried to trim our own beards. <laughs> but have you ever tried to cut your hair looking in a mirror? Or do anything in a mirror? It's difficult. What Jesus is now asking his disciples and us is that they learn to think in a similar inside-out way. To begin with, they find it completely impossible. Peter, speaking for them all, has just told Jesus, as far as they're concerned, he is not just a prophet, but he's, a, he's God's anointed king is the Messiah. Their natural, natural next move would be to sit down and plan their strategy. Okay, if he's the king, and if his people are going to be like the house built on the rock, then they first must figure out how to get rid of the present king and priest, who are ruling Israel, or more, misruling it. So the obvious solution, especially with all of these miracle skills that God, Jesus, has been showing them, right? They're like, going, oh cool, we've got the miracle worker on our side. So the obvious solution of storming the gates of hell is to let him loose, Right? It would be to march to Jerusalem, pick up supporters on the way, choose your moment, say your prayers, fight a surprise battle, take over the temple, and install Jesus as king. That's how God's kingdom will come. That's how the Son of Man will be exalted in his kingdom. That we may be sure with something like that is what they had in mind. But Jesus proposed a through the looking glass, through a mirror version. Yes, we will be going to Jerusalem. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming and coming soon. Yes, the Son of Man will be exalted as king, dispensing justice to the world. But the way to this kingdom is by the exact opposite road to the one the disciples, and especially Peter, had in mind. It will involve suffering and death. Jesus will indeed confront the rulers and authorities, the chief priests and the legal experts in Jerusalem. But they, not he, will appear to win the battle. He will then be raised from the dead, so Jesus says. But neither Peter nor the others can figure out for the moment what he might mean by this. And Peter blunders And what seems like the rock, and can we all relate to that? What seems like the rock that was supposed to be Peter is just shifting sand. Jesus insists that God thinks differently from how we mortals think. God sees everything inside out, or perhaps we should say God sees everything the right way around, whereas we see everything inside out. Are you willing to acknowledge that? that we see things inside out naturally. Once that is clear, the call goes out to follow Jesus, a call which rings down the centuries like a great bell in a distant church, calling us from whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing, whoever we are. Imagine the bell echoing through the streets of your town. Pick up your cross and follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Imagine its sound resonating through shops and offices, through schoolrooms and hospital wards, through bustling tenants and lonely apartments. Pick up your cross and follow me. And following me will cost everything, but it will give you everything. There are no half measures on this journey. The phrase, the son of man coming in his kingdom, some of us wonder about that. Like, what was he talking about when he said, some of you will still be alive when the son comes in the kingdom? He's not talking about what we would call the second coming, but about his vindication following his suffering. It would be fulfilled when he would rise from the dead and is granted all authority in heaven and on earth. Remember, he's going to say that in Matthew 28 after he rises from the dead. And many were going to be there to see that. And to those who follow him today, Jesus makes equally large promises. He is already risen and exalted as Lord of the world. We don't have to wait as they did for his vindication. It's already happened. And it remains true that to follow him, we have to learn to think inside out, like looking in a mirror. What the world counts as great is foolishness. And what the world counts folly is true wisdom. Cling to your life and you'll lose it. Think about what we talked about, about expressive individualism. People are trying so hard to hang on to their life and to define it and define it uniquely. It's driving our society to anxiety and disconnectedness. We see some of the folly, but we keep pressing. Our answers to it are still find yourself, follow your heart, you be you. And it drives the folly deeper and deeper. But Jesus says, cling to your life and you'll lose it. Give everything you've got to following Jesus, including life itself, and you'll win it. In every generation there are, it seems, a few people who are prepared to take Jesus seriously at his word. What would it be like if we were one of them? What would it be like if you were one of them? I'm not done yet. In a wow moment. I actually wrote that on my paper. After six days, Matthew 17 starts. Jesus took Peter, James, and James's brother, John, and led them off up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transformed in front of them. His face shone astonishingly. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, and Luke talks about them shining as well. They were talking with Jesus. Peter just had to say something. Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. I love that Peter hadn't given up yet, even after he had blundered a little bit and Jesus had called him Satan. He's back to worshiping God. Good for him. And I think the reason he felt free to do that is he felt the love of Jesus. And he knew that Jesus spoke what was true, so he kept following him. It's wonderful for us to be here. If you want... I'll make three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Then there came a voice out of the cloud. This is my dear son, and I am delighted with him. Pay attention to him. People often suggest that Jesus was shining brightly because he was divine, and that this was a vision of his divinity, which was other have remained secret. But in Luke's accounts, Moses and Elijah are shining as well. So it can't mean that Moses and Elijah, they they aren't divine. Matthew, and Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, that all God's people would shine like stars in God's kingdom. And the New Testament writers in general think humanity itself is a glorious thing. So it's not that God has called us to be less. It's that we settle for far less than God has for us. Humanity itself is a glorious thing, and Jesus' perfect humanity provides the model for the glory which all his people will one day share. If you want to see Jesus' divinity, the early Christians would tell us, you must look, however, surprisingly at Jesus' suffering and shameful death. If that seems puzzling, it puzzled the first Christians, but they insisted we should live with it. In fact, the scene of the transfiguration, as it's normally called, offers a strange parallel and contrast to the crucifixion. If you're going to meditate on the one, you might like to hold the other in your mind as well as sort of a backdrop. You guys with me? Go ahead, you can look at the pictures. Here on a mountain is Jesus revealed in glory. There on a hill outside Jerusalem is Jesus revealed in shame. Here his clothes are shining white. There they have been stripped stripped off and soldiers have gambled for them. Here he is flanked by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes, Representing the law and the prophets. There he is flanked by two brigands. Representing the level to which Israel had sunk in rebellion against God. Here a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, darkness comes upon the land. Here Peter blurts out how wonderful this all is. There he is hiding in shame after denying he even knows Jesus a voice from God himself declares that this is his wonderful son. A pagan soldier declares in surprise that this really was God's son. Perhaps we really only understand either of them when we see it side by side with the other. Learn to see the glory in the cross. Learn to see the cross in the glory. And you will have begun to bring together the laughter and the tears of God, who from a cloud is to be known in the strange person of Jesus himself. This story is, of course, about being surprised by the power and love and beauty of God. But the point that we should learn is to recognize that that same power, love, and beauty within Jesus and to listen for it in his voice, not least of when he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He is God's son, the Messiah, and God is delighted with what he is doing. The word to the disciples then is just as much a word to us today. If you want to find the way, the way to God, the way to the promised land, you must listen to Jesus. I think we have to understand this is true Christianity. If we can begin, I just, I want us to dig deeper in that. Maybe this is, it's like, okay, that's enough. Maybe some of you want to dig deeper to talk deeper. Maybe take it to your groups. I think forever until we get to heaven, this, this is the heart and soul of God, the combination of these two. It's power. It's love. It's beauty. That's who God is. And that's what Jesus came to demonstrate and teach to us. God is glorious and he loves us so much that he did live the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserve to die so that we could become children of God and enter the kingdom of God and have eternal life. But to do that, we must say no to our natural bent and no to the signs of our times. But for those who are willing to say no to even hanging on to their own life, real life will be given to them. That's Christianity. And I love, and I'm just gonna mention these few things. God said, listen to him. So what did Jesus follow up with that? More miracles, teaching of power and love and beauty. He talked about the faith of a mustard seed, that if you have just a little bit of faith that it's placed in the right person, you can move mountains. I was struggling a little bit last week when we were reading about being in the boat and how he said, oh, you have little faith. And I had this in mind. I'm like, I thought you said little faith was good. (laughs) And I'm like, "I'm, I'm, I'm kind of confused. Like you're correcting him for little faith over here, but you're saying it's just having a little faith you can move mountains. So which one is it? And actually, James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus, explains it really well in the book of James. And he says that if you're double-minded, and he talked about you're like the waves being tossed back and forth if you doubt. And that's what he was confronting them about on the boat. Their little faith was being expressed in doubt. So Peter was literally tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea because he was double-minded. What he's talking about here, the faith of the mustard seed, is if you have a little bit of faith and you put it in God, you can move mountains. No double-mindedness there. So as his disciples then are getting a feel for this, and they're kind of and we do too, as we begin reading this, right? We started off with, what are you seeking?" And now we're we're understanding more and more what the kingdom of God is like that we're seeking. You can you can kind of feel Jesus pulling closer and closer as he's telling them about this. You can almost hear the victory trumpets beginning to blow. And then his disciples go, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? Right? It's like we our natural bent is to go after greatness for ourselves. It's just our natural bent. Praise Jesus for his patience, seriously. (laughs) And he calls, one of my translations says her, but another one of mine said him, so it's like that was one thing I didn't get to dig into. But he calls a little girl or a little child and puts them in front of him and says, become like her, become like him, become like a little child. Ladies, we work so hard stressing ourselves out, being so busy to become in the world's eyes, mature adults. Godlike. I think one of the biggest things when we start stressing out is to say, I am not God. I have been created to be something glorious, like shining Moses and Elijah, and talking about abundant life, and talking about there is a resurrection to come, and we're going to dwell in heaven, and it's going to be... Incredible, God created humans to be a beautiful thing, but not God. That's a very important distinction. (laughs) We tend to go, we feel the image of God dwelling within us, and then we go, let's go for it. And it's like we try and become like gods. Doesn't that resonate with the Tower of Babel that we read in the Old Testament? That's what they said let's make a great name for ourselves. The disciples are doing the same thing here. They're wanting to build a Tower of Babel to themselves. And he said, become like a little child. You know what little children are? They are completely dependent. They need someone to feed them. They need someone to teach them. They need someone to care for them. We should be like that. Lord God, feed me. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Feed me. Lord God, teach me. I honestly do not know what to do. Teach me. Lord God, give me life. Life does not dwell within me. My tendency, man, is to build a tower and make my name great, but that leads me to lose my life. Teach me how to deny myself and take up my cross and follow you and find true life. Teach me. Be like a little child. The weakest, most vulnerable. We need to get comfortable with that word vulnerable. We need to celebrate that. That's another word that's like weakness. We need to be content with our vulnerability. I don't know about you, but there are times, and see, this is another conversation we can have, I think, especially as women. There are times I hate my vulnerability. Hate it. Scream at God about my vulnerability. But here's Jesus saying the most vulnerable, least significant human being you can think of is the clearest possible signpost to what the kingdom of God will be like. God's kingdom, the future time when heaven rules on earth, won't be about survival of the fittest. Thank God I've never won that one. It won't be the result of some long evolutionary process in which the strongest, the fastest, the loudest, the angriest people get to the front ahead of everyone else. Jesus tosses all of that out the window and instead calls out a little child. unsure of themselves, vulnerable, but trusting and with clear eyes, ready to listen, ready to be loved and to love, ready to learn and grow. This is what true greatness is like. And we need to go and learn it and be unashamed of it. I thought it was really powerful when it says the angels that look over these little ones the power and the love and the beauty of god that's poured out toward these little ones they actually get to see the face of god what did it mean by that if you remember in the old testament often when it would describe angels it would talk about they had wings that would cover their eyes the angels that look after vulnerable ones get to look at the face of God. he's so beautiful and loving But he does call us to deny our natural self, that self that is so tempted to live life without God. Live life not depending on him. We need to crucify that. And one of the ways we're going to see that, and he goes into it, and man, that could be a whole other talk in and of itself too. We will have healthy relationships if we humble ourselves like a little child. And if we deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow our glorious God, there will be times that we will need to deny self to reconcile with others. That's what he teaches after he taught this glorious thing and God said, listen to me. One of the things he teaches is how to connect well with others, how to resolve conflict with others. Can it get any more practical than that? I went to CCA last night, they were having a parent forum in light of some suicides that have happened in our community. And it talked about some of the suicide prevention is um, needing to teach our kids, and sometimes even teach ourselves, some of these things, and I'm going to list some things and tell me if Jesus hasn't taught on these things, even in today's teaching. Life skills. Life, skills, resiliency. What is resiliency? Humility, perseverance, forgiveness, connectedness. That's what this part was about in Matthew 18. How do we connect with others? And they even mentioned connectedness and conflict resolution. (laughs) I'm like, it's in the Bible. (laughs) We can do this. Like the things that that they are saying is suicide prevention are things that Jesus is teaching in this passage. It's just teaching as if in a mirror because the things that are most natural to us actually lead us to want to kill ourselves. Is this all there is? I have no hope. They basically said, how about this word? They basically said, which I thought it was great. It was so great, but as I'm sitting there, I'm seeing Jesus all over it. They said suicide thoughts happen when pain outweighs hope. Lady, do we have a place for our pain? Our place for our pain is both of these. It's both of these. Go deeper and think about that. Talk about that with some people. What did Rhonda mean when she said our pain is both of these things? Think about that a little bit. For one, our pain has been taken care of. We have forgiveness with God. If that's where some of the pain is coming from, it's from personal sin and guilt, that pain has been taken care of. What if our pain is loneliness? We are never alone. We are God's children. The Holy Spirit is always dwelling with us. That pain is taken care of. And there is a glorious hope awaiting for us when we will be completely transformed in the presence of God. For those who deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Just real quickly, some pictures that I want to mention. Things to die from so that we can live for Christ. I'm just going to be super practical. These are things that God wants to create in you. So at first, you must die to some things. But these are some things he wants to create in you. I call Matthew 18, care fronting. They called it last night, be direct. I call it care fronting. Forgiveness, peace, patience, joy, contentment. God says women with a gentle and quiet spirit are beautiful. We can't create that in ourselves, ladies. Have you ever tried to create a gentle and quiet spirit in yourself? I have, it doesn't work. Boldness and sharing the living gospel. Serving others in Jesus' name. Being honest, not gossiping. That was one thing they talked about last night. We have to provide safe places for one another where we can be honest. Don't gossip. Be honest. Pray vulnerably. Be open to God as you read your Bible. Don't just read your Bible and go check. Create space to linger and have intimacy with God. One of the biggest things they talked about last night is we have to be good at asking for help, even when we don't have the words. We need to teach our kids to do that. Just because you don't know why you're feeling the way you're feeling doesn't mean that you can't ask for help. Same for us adults. Just because you can't articulate the words doesn't mean we don't ask for help, especially in coming to know God. Reject fast-paced living so you can take time to be with the Holy Spirit. Create room for Him to work and speak in your life. That's all I got, except... I have some pages for further reflection. Um, Can I get some help passing them out and I'll explain them? So yeah, you should have two separate handouts. And actually it's three different things. So the one that says, question, what did Jesus mean when he said, take up your cross and follow me? You can just take some time and linger over that if you want to know a little bit more. And maybe journal. You know, one place I like to go is to um, Poway Lake takes a little bit to get there, but once you get there, it can be nice and quiet. You can go in your backyard or stay in your bed, wherever you want to go, but you can also kind of get away in the nature and spend some special time with God, kind of thinking that through. What would that look like, God, for me? Because for each person, it's a little bit different, and I'll use one example. Bob on Sunday taught on patience, right? Really good. But he described for one person, they tend to explode, right? When their patience meter has gone wonkers, they go. Other people go. So for the person that goes for them to deny self, take up their cross, it would be for them to create some space for the Holy Spirit can get them to maybe be still. Don't respond. Don't, don't react. For the person that tends to implode, it would be the same thing, creating space for the Holy Spirit. But what he's going to prompt them to do is stay in the game with love and truth. And if anybody has that side note, that's what I have. And I had an opportunity like that this week. And I'm like, okay. I'm staying. I'm not going to implode. I'm not going to do the turtle thing. I'm gonna. I want to love. I want to be patient, but I don't want to be passive. I'm going to stay in the game. Then I'm like,
1: I don't know what to do here,
0: right? It creates that place of dependence, and I'm like, okay, be like a child, be teachable. Say, God, I don't have it within me to know what to do in this. My go-to is to withdraw, but Your Holy Spirit is prompting me to stay in the game. I'm going to need your help. That's holy spirit living. That's not pathetic Christian living. That's holy spirit living. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So, take some time you might look at that dig a little bit deeper. I thought that was phenomenal. That was from got questions. And then these are just a couple of things that I that I have in my file. The real and new self is by C.S. Lewis. So, if you kind of think That way, um, in kind of more of a philosophical process kind of way, that might really give you some thoughts and clarity and direction if you want to take that. And then the among the unashamed is a guy who kind of articulated, um, if you look at the, not the very bottom, but the next to the bottom, written by a young African pastor and found tacked on the wall of his house after he was killed for his faith. They found this. Um, This is a take up your cross and follow me response. How would you respond in declaring to Jesus that you are taking up your cross and following him? It's a unique response for each person. If I were to write this one, but again, that's what God was calling him to. So his response, he was responding to what God was calling him to. But I look at these of, um, I won't give up, shut up, or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up, for the cost. Right, I sit there and I go, okay, that would be inviting my shingles back. <laughs> right? Just totally, I don't need sleep. I'm just going to stay up. I mean, part of me would love to be able to do that. But part of me humbling myself is that I actually need eight hours of sleep. I like, I can't think. I can't function. I get sick. I get shingles, pain back. It's like, I just, I can't do that. So what would be my declaration to God? It wouldn't have this. I'm Totally push my body to its till I pass out and I'm hospitalized. It's like I can't say that. God called him to do that because his time was limited. But it would have whatever we would say, would have some of the same dynamics and words that he said. I no longer need preeminence, I no longer need prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right. I don't have to be first. I don't have to be on top. I don't have to be recognized. I don't have to be praised. I don't have to be regarded or rewarded. That's the same for everybody. Your tone may be different, but those are some words that taking up your cross and following Jesus looks like. So that might be something that would help you as you kind of think that through. So that's just for your further reflection. Um... Two things. One, we'll have some QA time if you guys have that. Um, also, next week, um, we can have some more QA time. So, if you want to kind of process this week and then come back and say, okay, this is what I thought about this week, I want to let's can we talk about that? So, we'll have some time next week also to kind of process this maybe or something that we talked about this week or some of these handouts. We'll have We'll create space to go a little, dig a little deeper with one another, if we want to do that. If we don't, we'll just move into groups and such, but just to let you know. I think this is significant, and when we get to Paul, so after we go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's what we're reading right now, then we're going to hit Acts, which is the beginning of the church, but because it's the spread of the church, we're going to read Acts from now until December of next year, or September of next year, because we're reading it chronologically, And in between Acts are going to be the different books that he wrote to the different churches that he's traveling through in Acts, right? But that's going to be Paul taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And the one phrase you're going to hear him say a lot is in Christ. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. When we get there, this is what we need to be thinking of when we think of in Christ. We're not going to revert back to humanistic thinking of, oh, positive thoughts, I'm in Christ. Self-reliance, just need to be in Christ and apply these things. No, we are in Christ when we trust what Jesus Christ did on the cross to live the life we couldn't live and die the death we deserve to die. And then he rose again in all of his glory to have all authority in heaven and on earth. And he can take me, who is spiritually dead, and make me spiritually alive. That's what it means to be in Christ. So that's why I want us to make sure we don't just rush on from this, but we kind of all work it out a little bit more. And again, every year that we live, God's going to take us deeper in this. But I just want to make sure we have the space to be where we need to be right now with this. Does that make sense? <laughs>
1: I will close this in prayer. And pray for Mario. I'll pray for Mario. Father, we are so thankful for this morning. We're so thankful for the teaching. We are so thankful for you. I kept thinking about this as this was being shared and how and what you've done for us, why you came here. And that, Father, we just pray that we would take what was shared today, not just walk from here thinking, oh, that was wonderful. But, Lord, I pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring to us what you want us to take. How do we live this before others? That's what I'm praying. How do we apply this? How do we have that beautiful kingdom perspective that Jesus came and brought to us? So I pray for that as a gift to us, that we would have movement as people will see changes in us. I pray that for each woman sitting under this teaching this morning. And then, Lord... I pray for Marilyn, I pray for Peter, and I pray for their family as they are going through a very difficult journey together. My father, I pray that you would equip Marilyn with the strength and the power that comes from the presence of God that lives in her. I pray that you would bring peace to them. I pray for comfort as I know she's struggling. She misses so much her ministries that she wanted to give to you, but this is her ministry now. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage her with words and with the love of others pouring forth to her. And I pray that, Lord, that you would speak to Peter during these times and that you would encourage the family as they have all gathered together. It is a beautiful thing to see this family cooperating and being with one another. And so, Lord, I pray that even in this women's ministry, we're a part of community with her, that we would love her as well. So I ask this in Jesus'
0: name. Amen.